0: Welcome to Queer Thinking, a podcast where we unpack queer identity, dive into issues and explore all the things that make us unique, connected and creative. Our LGBTQIA plus community is really special. We represent all the wonderful colours of the rainbow. And although we come together as one to support, uplift and celebrate our united community, we're all so different and each of us has a unique story to tell. From the provocative and heartfelt to the hilarious and heart-wrenching, over the next eight episodes, no topic is off limits, as we invite a dynamic assortment of LGBTQIA guests onto the show to open up and share their stories. Queer Thinking is produced on unceded Aboriginal land. We pay our respects to elders past and present, as well as our brother boys and sister girls of the LGBTQIA community.
1: Hey there, I'm Triana Butler, the host of Queer Thinking. The relationships between our LGBTQIA communities and religion is a complicated one. Many queer people, including myself, have had adverse experiences with religion, whether it's being told that their identities are not compatible with their beliefs, that some behaviours are sinful, or even being forced through conversion practices in the hopes that they can be changed. But for some people, being queer and religious is at the core of their identities. In this episode of Queer Thinking, we'll be chatting to LGBTQIA people of faith. Joining me today will be Josephine Inkpin, Josephine's Australia's first Anglican transgender clergy. She's going to be sharing stories of how she found herself and her identity in the church, as well as the important work she's doing within her church to ensure it's a safe, welcoming space for everyone. Also joining me is Chris Chabs. Chris grew up in a very religious household and after realizing his sexuality at a young age, began to seek out any possible means of trying to change who he was, including conversion practices. It wasn't until a conversation with his religious mother that he realized maybe he didn't need to be fixed because he wasn't broken. And finally, I'll be joined by Fahad Ali, a gay Muslim and Palestinian activist whose coming out story centers around a free freezer. You heard that right. Josephine, Chris and Fahad will share their stories of what it was like growing up religious and the long and often treacherous journey to get people to where they are today. Proud LGBTQIA people of faith. Before we get into the episode, I want to warn you that we will be discussing conversion practices and the relationship the queer community has with religion. The episode also contains discussion of homophobic and transphobic situations that our guests have been subjected to, which may be upsetting for some listeners. Remember that support is available for a list of LGBTQIA plus support services. Head to Mardi forward slash support. So joining me now are Josephine Inkpen, Chris Chabs, and Fahad Ali. Welcome on
2: in.
3: Thank you. Great to be here.
1: Now we'll start with Josephine. Josephine, you're an Anglican transgender priest. What was your relationship like with the church as you were
3: growing up? Well, it was a bit mixed, but I was quite fortunate. I grew up in England, probably tell from my accent, and in a form of Anglicanism, not the same as in Sydney, which is actually sort of quite what you might call a gentle, liberal, Catholic sort of tradition within Anglicanism. And so we didn't do a lot about sin and, and all that sort of stuff, but it was hovering in the background and it was sufficient sort of to make me uneasy about myself. And I think I probably imbibed some of that. But in a way, I've always felt that, and it might sound a bit weird to to more secular people, but I think faith in the church partly saved my life when I was younger. That and football, having the opportunity to play some sort of thing that in the male sort of space and and feminism as well. But faith, because it was a sort of a strange sort of a space which was different from the rest of the world, which was telling me to be this or that, and in my sort of um church background things were sort of slightly a bit more queer i would say you know we had we would have angels and saints and 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 this jesus figure who didn't really fit any real categories and 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 weird stories and all sorts of other things and so and and i was able to dress up you know as as a Choir, chorister, and then in other ways. So I, I think it, it my style of Christianity. But underneath was this other stuff that was supported by the wider world, which was quite binary and and not very body positive. So we weren't super body positive in my church, but but we weren't body hating. I think. Now, you were the
1: first church leader to come out as transgender in Australia. Yes. What was the reaction from other religious leaders or organisations, especially within the Anglican faith, when you came out as that?
3: Well, that's right. It, it, it's, a bit, well, very mixed. And a lot of people are just complete surprise. I got out from under just before some Anglicans in Australia started beating up on trans people because they've been so obsessed with beating up gay people. They hadn't really noticed we were around. Um, And now we are sort of in the focus of things. But uh, I was quite fortunate because there there have been transgender priests in the Anglican community and other places for, oh, I don't know, a couple of decades. And if I'd have stayed in England, I I moved to Australia just at the point when the first two came out in England. And I think I would have come out shortly afterwards. So I had that support of people from further afield. But it was quite challenging. It it is hard being a pioneer in that space and not knowing what to expect. And that's quite demanding. And I'm, I'm glad there's a couple more of us come out in the Anakin community. But in the Uniting Church, I'm still the only um, gender diverse trans out minister. So there's there's a way to go for other places as well.
1: So tell us about how you came to be appointed and given a license to leave the congregation at Sydney's Pitt Street Uniting Church.
3: Pitt Street has a long history. of. We had um, the first out lesbian minister, Dorothy McRae McMahon, and we've had other queer uh, ministers like Margaret Maimon, who's in Melbourne now, and so there's been a tradition of of, of a fully supportive, uh, certainly LGB community, and I guess trans is the next step. But they didn't choose me for that, but for other reasons as well. You know, a very progressive community of faith in in a variety of different ways, and so that's been part of my journey. And so eco theology and other things, and and having an intelligent approach to faith and that I guess that's part of what they saw that I could bring to that and for me I had worked in Sydney and in, in ecumenically as well so I knew the church a little bit and so it seemed to be the right place to go. Although I, did, I do miss Brisbane in some ways, and there's some, some beautiful things in the Anglican Church, but also the Uniting Church offers a space, hopefully, to, for us to move forward and, and to be even more affirming and flourishing than, than we have done. So um, it's a good space to be, although a challenging one, because Sydney is the most difficult of the capital cities, I think, for gay people, particularly in relationship to faith.
1: Yeah, I know this city's uh, Anglican diocese doesn't endorse any kind of divergence between biological sex and gender identity and gender expression. Do you think that'll change anytime soon?
3: I don't think it'll change in Sydney. No, I think they're determined. They're very, very deeply committed. they have had a lot of money from the foundations of modern Australia, which was never shared with the wider church. Um, They're very power conscious. They drove with other people, the religious discrimination debate because they knew they'd lost the debate about marriage equality, but they wanted to shore up their power. And that's what they're interested in. It's very, very difficult for people. There are some people in the Anglican church, thank God in Sydney, who do offer it a friendlier space, but it's it's hard to exist in that space and they're not going to change that. Thank God in other parts of the Anglican communion, things are very different in America and Canada and there's a liturgy that's for worship and, and support for trans people, especially in the United States, but also in Canada and it's happening in other places, Scotland to some degree and in England. But I, I think other places are making that move. And we you know we had wonderful policies for in schools for trans and gay kids in Southern Queensland in the Anglican church and that sort of things. So there are spaces to be, although I don't think marriage equality is going to happen in the Anglican church anytime soon.
1: Now, I know we have uh, Fahad with us today. So I'm going to ask this question, touch wood, I'm sure this is going to go well. What's your relationship with other religions?
3: Generally, very positive. I mean, it was a question when I, I was coming out whether or not, you know, all the work I'd done on interfaith stuff would go out of the window. And there are uh, other faith leaders that's very difficult for. But I was quite surprised. I mean, I worked with Pure Land Buddhists in, in Toowoomba when I was there. And and actually, um, they were very supportive when I came out, actually, and quite helpful to try and explain to other people. And my church has got a very good, I mean, we have a regular Iftar interfaith as part of the commitment we have through the Australian religious response to climate change, which is a interfaith movement. And so we believe like, I mean, any sane person, really, that we should treasure, and Jesus said this, and really the best part of the Bible, um, wherever there's love and light and truth and mystery and encouragement, we should be encouraging that. So anything in any space, secular or other faith, is wonderful. And we've got to move between this, this competition and the use of faith to you know, to divide people rather than to enable people to flourish. And if people can find flourishing through Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism or through anything else or not having any specific spiritual commitment as such, then let it be. And if we can help with that, then then we will do so.
1: Have you had any self-doubts about being a person of faith and also being part of the LGBTQIA community? Because that does seem kind of like a, a double minority in that situation. How do you kind of explain that duality to other people?
3: Well, yes, it is. I mean, I feel more integrated now than I've ever done. But we've got all sorts of different... I mean, the the thing is that we're all a multitude of different things, aren't we? You know, I mean, just my accent gives me away that I'm English and I have a particular range of things. And so for me, uh, the way I would explain it is that the sense of sacredness in life is as fundamental to me as my gender identity. But what to do with that, like what beliefs I have and how I use them against other people, that is a matter of probably opinion and debate. But, you know, you could put in law to recognize that sort of religious identity, but not as a way to beat up other people. I think that's the distinction I'd make. So the two things go together for me. And I mean, I don't understand. I mean, we're now in the world, as you know, of gender diversity of non-binary level. Well, why can't you be a non-binary person who's both a person of faith and a person who's gender diverse or sexually diverse? And and actually in the Bible, I mean, Jesus talks even about, you know, about eunuchs and different types of eunuchs, and they're not quite the same as you know, modern, sexually and gender diverse people, but it reflects the fact that in the ancient world and in so many cultures, um, there's so much diversity. And unfortunately, a particular view of Western Christianity, I think, has been imposed on all sorts of cultures, not least through the British Empire. That has constricted this and and made people have to choose, as they do in the United Church, for example, sometimes between their culture, Pacific culture, for example, and their church, and and we've got to unwind that. But I don't think there's any. We're just amazing kaleidoscope of people. There's humanity, and and so faith can interweave. It's just one of the threads of of life, and it can either be a dark thread and a negative thread, or it can be an enlivening one.
1: You're listening to Queer Thinking. Today we're chatting with queer people of faith about their experiences. I want to head across to Chris now. Chris Chabs, you're a gay Christian, also a conversion therapy survivor. It's wonderful to have you with us today. The same question that we started with for Josephine, for you, when you were growing up, what was your relationship with the church like?
2: It was a confusing relationship. So church was my whole world growing up. Um, I went to a Christian school. I went to church on the weekend. Actually, we didn't just go to church on Sundays. We had regular contact with church throughout the week. And so my whole world was Christian. I didn't know any non-Christians until I was about 14. So I had this relationship with the church where I, I so wanted to be part of the club, but I felt that I wasn't. I I always knew that I was a bit different. I was especially different to what the church said that a man of God was supposed to be. So sort of, I had this idea of this sort of strong, masculine, you know, man of God that, you know, had a wife and all these things. And I just wasn't that, of course. And so I kind of developed an unhealthy relationship with the church where I was trying to be part of this community that I was just a little bit incompatible with. And this is even before I came out, But at the time, I thought that maybe my homosexuality could be healed or fixed. So I thought, well, if I keep just trying to do the right things at church, so if I keep volunteering in the office and, you know, teaching Sunday school and doing all those things, then maybe one day I'll be able to be part of it, you know? Now, you mentioned before you came out. When did you first come out? Uh, I came out when I was 16. It was an interesting time. I'd spent a lot of uh, years, obviously, in the church, and I'd heard a lot of messaging about who gay people were, specifically gay people. We didn't talk too much about you know, the other acronyms for some reason, I don't know why, but I, I had kind of gleaned from all of my years growing up, even as a little boy, overhearing adult conversations and things that gay people were deviant, that they were um, sexually broken. One of the examples that I am happy to share is overhearing my dad talking with one of the men at church. He was saying that a homosexual had come in off the street to ask for healing. And so they prayed over him, and all these demons of homosexuality had come out of him. Oh, all seven of them came out of him like this. And I must have been, I don't know how old I was, I must have been 11 ish. And I just remember being absolutely terrified after that because I thought, oh my God, maybe I've got you know, maybe I've got a demon in me or something, you know? And so when I was 16, I realized by then, well, and truly I'm definitely gay. This is not, not sort of what I was hoping it was going to be. I was hoping that it was just going to be sort of a transient, you know, growing phase, but it was very clear. And so um, I came out to my pastor at church and it was really to ask for help.
1: Yeah, right. You've also been through conversion therapy. And if it's okay, would you be okay with sharing some of that experience with us? Because it feels like that's yeah, sure. kind of what happened next
2: in your story after coming out. Yeah. Um, for for most people, it doesn't sort of start with just, oh, I'm, I've decided that I'm going to go through some sort of therapy or whatever. Most of the time, there's a lot of messaging that goes into it beforehand, um, an exposure to certain ideology that really steers you towards making a decision to sort of start seeking to change. And so I'd sort of heard all of those things as a young kid, thought that I was potentially under the influence of some sort of demonic spirit or something. And so I started out asking for a lot of prayer, so a lot of deliverance prayer, so where I would be prayed over to for demons to be released. And I continued to do that over a period of seven years. When I was 19, I decided to go to Canberra so that I could participate in a Living Waters course, which was very well known back then as a ex-gay course where you could go to sort of seek healing for sexual brokenness. Sorry for using these terms. This is just what what they were. And yeah, so I spent six months at Living Waters. It ran very much like Alcoholics Anonymous in the sense that it was weekly meetings. We would break up into small groups. We would confess to each other and, you know, discuss the... We had a big workbook and so we discussed the reading that we'd had and the homework that we'd done and the questions. And yeah, so it was very bizarre. And six months later, I was still very gay. So (laughs) I was pretty disappointed because I had, since I was 16, I had, I'd heard of Living Waters. My pastor told me about it and I thought, oh my gosh, when I'm old enough, I'm going to go to that and I'm going to get this sorted. And it wasn't sorted. And so after that, I spent the next several years, just um, completely abstinent, really trying anything and everything that I could. So exorcisms and just you know, I was trying to starve it out. I stopped watching television and certain things because I didn't, I thought maybe I could be influenced somehow by all of the secular stuff around me. I was a very, quite a tormented person. Um, and so by the time I was 23, I was a really big mess. And I I started praying to God every day that he would just either heal me or kill me because I just, I could not imagine how I could continue living my life Um, sort of, you know, with this faith that was totally incompatible, I thought was totally incompatible with what I was feeling, you know? And so I guess I was very lucky because my parents had watched this journey that I'd gone through over about seven years and they saw that I had changed a lot. So my mum tells me that at the time I was just a shell of who I used to be. I wasn't myself anymore. I'd stopped singing. I'd stopped smiling. I'd stopped telling jokes and things. And so she took me out for coffee one day and um, sat me down and asked me how I was going. And she told me that her and dad had been watching what this had been doing to me over a number of years. And they'd been praying about it and doing a lot of research. And she said that they'd kind of come to the decision that being gay was okay. And she asked me if maybe God hasn't healed you yet because you're not sick, which was difficult for me to hear because I was not like, I a hundred percent believed that I was, you know, there was something wrong, you know, but my parents were the ones that helped me to come out of that conversion movement. So, yeah.
1: Well, now today you're an LGBTQIA plus rights activist, you were there rocking a bright purple wear it purple hoodie, <laughs> um, and you're using all of these experiences to push for change yeah. right
2: across the nation. Yeah. In
1: terms of conversion therapy here in Australia, what's the current legal landscape on that?
2: Yeah, so we've got, we've got legislation in just three states in Australia, but they couldn't be more varied um, in terms of their effectiveness. So, of course, we've got the amazing Victoria legislation. Um, which just came into effect this year, which is absolutely world-class. It's known as being the most comprehensive legislation globally to curtail um, conversion practices. And um, the reason for that is that the Victorian government worked extremely closely with survivors and they were really dedicated to getting it right. And then, you know, we've got the ACT with legislation and then all the way on the other end of the effectiveness spectrum is the Queensland legislation, which came out first. But it's limited to practices that occur in the context of health services in Queensland. Despite and all the
3: efforts that religious, but when we tried, we told them religious groups, but then they yes. just went ahead and ignored us. Yes, it.
2: exactly. And so, and the problem with, with that is that, of course, we know that the vast majority of conversion practices in Australia aren't c- occurring in health services; they're occurring in religious contexts.
0: So, mm.
1: well, how how can people help fight against
2: these laws and practices? I think. So right now with um, several states and territories that are sort of considering uh, legislation or that have um, said that they will enact legislation at some point, uh, we are seeing a lot of misinformation that's circulating about, you know, what it could mean for, you know, religious freedom and all of these other things. So I think it's important for our community, the LGBTQ community, to be educated and to be aware of the facts so that we can all speak with one voice in response. So um, I would say Go to the Sojice Survivor website, read the Sojice Survivor Statement. It's, that's the voice of survivors, I guess. Um, and, you know, in terms of what survivors recommend, what we're asking for. Yeah. For now, for those who haven't heard of Sojice, what's Sojice? SOGIES is Sexual Orientation, Gender Identity Change Efforts. And SOGIES Survivors is um, basically came about uh, in 2018. A whole bunch of survivors were kind of realizing that our stories weren't having lasting impact. And so Nathan Despot and I um, gathered a group of survivors together and decided that we would write a statement together so that we could all kind of have one voice. And this would be our recommendations that we've all agreed upon using our language, et cetera. And so we wrote the Sojai Survivor Statement. And of course, it went around to all of our LGBT networks and to a whole bunch of different people for input um, and to check it. And it still goes through that process now. And uh, it ended up being endorsed by a whole bunch of groups like Amnesty International, et cetera. And so our work that we do now is really advocating survivor-led interventions to stop Conversion practices from happening.
1: It's powerful. You're on queer thinking. We're chatting with queer people of faith today. And Fahad Ali, welcome on Ian. You're a gay Muslim. I, I want to ask the same question that we started with for the others. When you were growing up, what was your relationship with religion like?
4: So I grew up in a religious family. And, you know, that meant that we would do things like we would go to the mosque, we would take part in Ramadan, I'd fast. I actually went to a religious school for most of the early part of my primary schooling. So up until year four and, um, you know, sexuality was something that didn't really hit me until I think I was like 11 years old. And when I had this realization that I was gay and, you know, growing up, you know, at that time, uh, it, it was difficult, right? Like it was difficult, not just because I was Muslim, it was difficult because there was much more homophobia than exists today. I really wanted to to bridge this sort of divide by trying to figure out ways in which I could make the religion work for me. So um, what I ended up doing was I, I read quite a lot of theology, some um, you know Islamic texts, some you know arguments as to why sexual and gender diversity were not you know excluded within islam and so it led me to a point of realization that in fact the problem isn't with islam itself the problem is with what i at the time as a young teenager began to understand as patriarchy or patriarchal interpretations of theological text and you know this was something that i perceived not only as far as um you know the LGBTQ issues, but also with regards to things like women and other prejudices that exist within um, our community. So I, you know, I was having, you know, going through all of these thoughts myself and trying to figure out what I believed for myself. And, you know, it was hard because sometimes I had a crisis of faith and I decided I didn't actually believe in this stuff anymore. And then I'd come back to it and then I'd, you know, I feel like something was wrong with me and I'd break down and cry and try to pray that I would get better one day and I wouldn't be gay. But I kept most of that to myself until I was 18. And so I kind of, you know, suffered in silence. And so
1: you've now grown up and you're living as a gay Muslim. What's your experience of that been like?
4: Yeah, so I think it's interesting because there's this perception that, okay, Islam is uniquely conservative as a religion compared to everything else, which is a a bizarre kind of um, take, especially given recent events in the United States of America. But um, I, I think that I have had a better experience than most people, and that's because I came out to my parents, and when I did, the first thing my mother said was, you're going to get AIDS and die and um you know that was that was quite a confronting thing to hear and then a lot of my school friends when they found out were quite you know aggressive and wanted to exclude me from our social group and that was that was that was a difficult thing to to have to deal with but then you know I went to uni made other friends and and through the passage of time and i think because of the fact that i was sort of non compromising in my identity, I kind of said, Look, I am gay, this is who I am. And like it or not, that's not going to change. Uh, You know, I found a place for myself within the community. And I also embarked on a journey with my own mum, of you know getting her to come around so um how was that i mean we got we got to stop and ask <laughs> about that Well, tell me about that, that jenny that whole, <laughs> whole, uh, this is a pretty funny story actually so um mum didn't the idea of me being with a man was like you know absolutely you know caused the most extreme distress for her um To the point where she would say things like i've had sleepless nights just thinking about how wrong it is that you're gay and um you know i would start dating guys and i i got into a really serious relationship and i wanted to introduce my mom to this person and when i told her she was like no 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 not gonna happen so um a few months later my mom said to me this is this is kind of the basis of this um her changing her mind she said you know i really would like a chest freezer and so <laughs> my 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 partner at the time was his parents happened to be moving house and my partner's, my ex-partner's mum said to me, "Oh, we've got a chest freezer we're getting rid of." <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, <laughs> great. I told my mum this. I was like, yeah, "Look, it's, I've, I've I found you a chest freezer to yours. The only hitch is that you kind of have to pick it up from my boyfriend's place." And so she, what she did was not going to let you know homophobia stand in the way for good, you know, deals. <laughs> of a free freezer. <laughs> So she rocks up in a U meets my partner. She meets um, my partner's um, mother. And, um, you know, then like weirdly, but I think she kind of expected, she had this weird image in her mind that like I was dating some kind of, cause she would say to me, but you can't be gay. You're not that feminine. So I think she had in her mind that I was dating some like super like gay fairy boy, but then she just met this like milk toast white boy. And so she was like, Oh, that's not so bad. (laughs) And I guess from that, you know, she would start to be like, Oh, how is he doing? And, you know, like it just went from there. And then she ended up, you know, being, you know, asking how he was doing from time to time, inviting him over, you know, even met with my, my partner's parents for tea. So that was a journey, but it's a journey I've seen with other people and their parents. And I don't think that that's possible for everyone, but it's certainly not impossible.
1: Yeah. You're still in contact with them
4: and good standing. How's, how's that all going? Well, um, my mom unfortunately passed away, uh, two years ago, I'm sorry. but uh, you know, it, it was really meaningful to me that before that happened, we could get to that point. Um, that, 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 that's probably the thing I'm happiest about about. And, you know, in terms of the rest of my family, my siblings and stuff, like they've always loved me. I've always loved them. Um, and I don't think that who I am as a person is going to change that. Well, I'm very
1: sorry for your loss and what a special moment to be able to share. That's really, really powerful. Thank you. Now, you also identify as a gay Palestinian activist. Tell us a little bit more about that and your background there.
4: Yeah, so I'm Palestinian and I think that um, what's really important for what I want to get across to people is that. You know people have this perception about people who are muslim or people who are people who are from an arab background or people who are not really white in general but um you know there's something uniquely homophobic about our cultures about who we are and which is really funny well not funny quite sad because if you go back a few decades like things were pretty bad here like you know lgbtq rights didn't emerge out of nowhere that we had to fight for them. And we fought for them, you know, here in Australia and we won, and we, I think we need to have that recognition that rather than seeing other cultures or other places in the world as being, you know, um, you know, somehow backwards in time, and therefore we don't want to go near you. We don't want to talk to you. We don't respect you. We need to be able to support those movements for change. And so that means supporting queer movements wherever they emerge. Now, Palestine is something that's very dear to my heart. And it's, um, you know, not necessarily a queer issue. It's a human rights issue. It's a question of apartheid. But the other thing that's really important about it is that, you know, I often hear, well, how can you be pro-Palestine if Palestinians hate gays? And, you know, I'm a leader in the Palestinian community. So, I mean, I wouldn't be in that position if my own community hated me. But also, the, the other thing is we've got a multiplicity of opinions, political you know, differences, um, you know, beliefs, and that exists everywhere. So even within Palestine, there are people who are probably very homophobic and p- people who are not. And what I want to do is to help build a movement for positive change. And I can't do that because what you're saying to me when you say something like that is you're saying you don't deserve basic human decency and rights on the basis of homophobia and that doesn't help queer people in Palestine. All that does is mean like there's no there's no magical rainbow road that gets you out of apartheid if you happen to be queer. Like you still are going to be subject to the same abuses. So what I'm saying is that in order to build that kind of future that I want to see, we need to support those queer movements in Palestine. We need to build up that solidarity and people know that this is a, you know, a really good strategy. You've all seen the movie about the, you know, Welsh miners, the, you know, pride. We've all seen that wonderful story about how, you know, the LGBT, um, you know, supports the miners group went in and then, you know, happy ending. And that's kind of the point, right? Like solidarity does go both ways.
1: Now, this is kind of a double barrel question. And the first barrel is Australia focused and the second barrel is globally. What is the current landscape for queer Muslims? First of all, in Australia.
4: Yeah. So in Australia, I think the landscape for queer Muslims is generally quite positive. We've got a number of good um, support structures. Um, so things like, um, you know, ACON would run a program for young Middle Eastern men. Um, and that, that doesn't necessarily cover like Islam, but certainly that would be part of it, right? I think that we've got support networks we've got groups we've got services that all cater to to these things and so that that's really positive and i think that in terms of the religious community that makes if you do face kind of discrimination or prejudice that gives you an outlet that gives you somewhere to go and support services that you can access and com- community and peers in terms of the actual muslim community in australia i think things are changing quite quickly and you know I think there's a problem as is the case everywhere and i think you know joe can probably agree that this is probably the case you know in the anglican church as well but the leadership is always so much worse than the actual people in the religion Mm -hmm. and um, that that tends to be the case for us as well where the community is moving a lot faster faster than the people in power um globally i would say that there's some real good uh, reasons to be optimistic um you know we've got a you know just to take it back to palestine we've got a strong and growing LGBT movement in Palestine and Lebanon um, and other places around the world. And we are trying to build up places in our communities so that we can challenge that patriarchal power and dominance and, you know, open up. I think that's a really important point.
1: You're listening to Queer Thinking. Today we're chatting with queer people of faith. We have transgender priest Josephine Inkpin. Gay Christian and conversion therapy survivor Chris Chabs and Gay Muslim Fahad Ali with us now. Josephine, you kind of spoke to this a little bit earlier um, in speaking about your work uh, in interfaith work with other people from different faiths. I'd love to know from each of you where you intersect with other religions. I might start perhaps with
2: Chris. Yeah, sure. So with my work with Sojai survivors as an and as an LGBTQ advocate, it's um, certainly not exclusive with uh, survivors from Christian backgrounds. Um, I know that whenever people talk about conversion practices, they instantly think of um, those that are in sort of have that Christian background. But we know that conversion practices are happening in a range of religions and cultures and regions all over the world. Um, and so uh, we've made sure that with the Sojai Survivor Statement that it's endorsed by survivors from multiple faith backgrounds um, and that we've always got input to ensure that the language and the framing is not simply representing uh, survivors uh, from you know, Christian faith backgrounds but that it's representative of all of us, yeah.
3: Yeah. Joy, how about you? Yeah, well, i spoke a little bit about that. I mean, my view is building on what Fahad said. It, you know, it is about I use word perhaps, but intersectionality. and We have to work together. And I, I mean, years ago, I hosted some folk from Nazareth, um, Palestinian Christians, and um, and Bethlehem, and um, and building that, movement, that like human rights are indivisible, and so we have to draw on all sorts of people. And I've just finished doing a intensive course, the first landmark. Um, Christian um, queer theology and university level here in Melbourne, and um, and it was a great joy to have one of my friends, Michelle McNamara, who works with um, transgender Victoria, and but also with um, queer multicultural uh, communities, um, who's a Buddhist, an active Buddhist, um, a dedicated Buddhist, and so to. To to have these different voices, and we we've, we've got to raise up the multiplicity of of um so we make all those connections so that people can see one another in the community and and other communities can see to you know to disabuse this idea that there are no queer people in any space or something we're just about everywhere and and we have to sort of affirm that and so the more that we can enable variety of voices and not just the same ones. Um, uh, that will make a big difference.
1: Absolutely, Fahad. What about you?
4: You know, I think um, my primary identity has kind of shifted over the years, and so I, I think of myself now as being, you know, Palestinian first, um, and and you know, kind of central to that is, you know, world religion. So I I I, rec- I recognize that you know, Palestine was the birthplace of Jesus. I recognize that it's an important location in the world to many different faiths. And um, for me, that's a real s- source of inspiration. Um, and I, I, you know, just work together with, um, you know, so many of my peers, Palestinian Christians, Palestinian, um, you know, community with the crossover with, you know, my Jewish peers and allies um, to help build a better world. And I think that's what it really comes down to in the end is that, you know, we all come from different backgrounds and walks of life and we all kind of have a shared vision of what the world should be. And despite our differences in faith and our differences in upbringing, we can work together, um, to, to build something that's, I think, inviting and safe for us all.
1: Hmm. Well, to that point, everybody kind of spoke to feelings when you were first coming out of, feeling really alone and feeling cut off from community. And and to these interfaith points, do you all know of any support networks for queer people of faith that are interfaith and where everyone's welcome?
2: Yes. Brave Network. Brave Network in Melbourne. Yeah.
3: Yeah we, we have I mean, we're working um, in uh, Equal Voices, which I'm co-chair, which is um, uh, queer Christians and allies, but we're working very closely with World Pride with um, Jewish and Muslim and Buddhist groups to, to have a common uh, stand, really together and, and support people so in, in that space so that we raise our voice and our visibility. It's about you know what sort of a world do we want to do and if faith faith and wisdom traditions can offer some resources in that alongside other things, but um, if we're in competition um, then we're then we it's a disaster and um, we have to work together and and so and and it serves the interests of patriarchy the right whatever. Want to call it when um, we we divided, and that's what's happening over trans people at the minute. Used as a is a weaponized sport in order to divide people and and toilets and all the other sort of nonsense. Um, and and we mustn't get into that, and we mustn't divide people of faith either from people who who don't commit themselves to faith. And, and I think it's been a, a deliberate tactic to try and have you know God versus the gays, God versus trans people to divide the queer community and and. And and although there are differences, we've got so much more in common. And and that's what we have to work on, whoever we are, whatever faith back.
1: Yeah, well, let's bring this home on a positive. You know, we've spoken a lot about the different hardships that each of you have faced, but I'd love to hear from each of you some of the positives that you've found in living your authentic life. Joe, we, we might start with you first on this one.
3: Yeah, well, it's fantastic. Well, a friend of mine has just had top surgery in Sydney and as a, as a pastor in Sydney, and they they post a picture on their Facebook page and they're still in you know with the scars, and it was wonderful. And they're still living in the gender euphoria um, stage, as it were. But 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 it. You know, it's not quite so intense after a while, but it's it. It's just wonderful to, and for instance, as a trans person to, you know, fully inhabit your body. Um, what the Christians call incarnation—that's what we're doing. Um, and just a joy. Um, I mean, a delight. I mean, the course we've had here with all kinds of different people, different, different Christian backgrounds, and and different identities and everything else, has been terrific because it's been about community. It's about being liberated, transformed, all the things that wisdom, faith traditions are supposed to be about, not about controlling people. Um, so when you enter into that and, br- and bring yourself together, both different sides of yourself, faith and and, and um, your queer identity in your body, then it, it's just, it uh, can be exhilarating and and, that, and the energy and the, and the life in that and the connections can help you deal with the, the suffering and the pain and some of the trauma that we carry and that Chris and Farhad had spoken of as well.
2: Chris, how about you? Um, yeah, I mean I think living an authentic life and being who you are is the only way to live. Um, <laughs> Uh, In a lot of ways, I think uh, being able to be honest with myself and with with God and with other people about who I am um, has made my relationship with God and my faith a lot more authentic, you know, because I'm no longer struggling to be um, something that I'm not. I'm not looking forward to being something else in the future. Um, Mm. You know, I've learned, and I'm still learning um, that God accepts me and all of us just as we are. So, and I think that being able to, um, reconcile my faith and sexuality, um, is just, yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah.
1: Fahad, you're already grinning so broadly right now. <laughs> Bring this
4: home. <laughs> you know, as I kind of, uh, said in my story, um, you know, what I said with my mum, that would not have been a end point that I had gotten to had I not lived an authentic life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I could have dealt with it in one or two ways. I could have kept who I was to myself, or I could have just said, no, this is who I am. And I'm going to block out everybody. Um, and you know, I think, you know, that wouldn't have been ideal either. And by living who I am authentically and truly, I've been able to build so many more connections Mm -hmm. with people based on the fact that, you know, I, I am out there. I am not going to shy away from saying I'm gay, I'm Muslim, I'm Palestinian. I You know, all that complexity in my identity can't be just, you know, reduced into one label. But by living that, by embodying that, you know, there's, there's so much potential in the connections we make and the the identities we have, and I think that's that's a super – wonderful thing that we're able to express so um i would definitely encourage everyone to do that <laughs> <laughs> well josephine Inkfin
1: chris chabs and fahad ali thank you so much for joining us today on queer thinking we really appreciate
2: your time thank you thank you so much thank you thank you for having us
0: thanks for listening to queer thinking presented by the sydney gay and lesbian mardi gras in collaboration with joy Australia's Rainbow Community Media Organisation. If the content in this episode has raised any issues or concerns for you, support is available. For a list of support services, visit mardigradorgau forward slash support networks. That's mardigras.org.au forward slash support networks. For more episodes of the Queer Thinking Podcast and to check out upcoming Queer Thinking events, Visit mardigra.org.au forward slash podcast.